Good to see everybody tonight. We will be starting the book of Nehemiah this evening, and so you may want to go ahead and find uh, the book of Nehemiah in your copy of the Scripture. If you're using the Purack Bible in front of you, it'll be found on page 398. Page 398, the Purack Bible in front of you, uh, or whatever page is in your Bible. <laughs> Um, I can't speak to that. But anyway, find the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to begin a series tonight entitled, Let's Build Something Together. Uh, who's done a study before on the book of Nehemiah? Anybody in here? Anybody? Yes, yeah, several folks. Okay, good, good. Well, that's what we'll be about the next uh, few Wednesday nights. And so uh, come prepared each Wednesday night to be a part of that. I want to challenge you this week to uh, read through the book in its entirety and take some notes on your own and just uh, do some self-study as well and uh, we're looking tonight at the topic the start of something new for God's glory good to see some new faces with us tonight too I uh, will plan on getting you to introduce yourself briefly at the end of our service tonight so pick out the spokesman in your family if you're here with somebody I'll have you say a few words but anyway uh, book of Nehemiah the start of something new for God's glory uh, the words of Nehemiah the son of um, Hakaliah now it happened in the month of Cheslev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel that Hanani one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants." Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. 
The book of Nehemiah, I think, is one of the most fascinating books that I have ever read about tackling challenges. You know, I'm convinced that business people in the world today could learn a great deal by reading the book of Nehemiah because there are great leadership principles for business people. Politicians could learn a great deal. Folks, if there's anything the world is in desperate need of today, it is for good leadership in all spectrums of of life. I mean, just think of what's going on right now in the world of politics that I just mentioned. uh, North Korea. Think of what's going on with these storms and the leadership that's going to be demanded for FEMA and other uh, organizations to go in and help these people recover. Churches, churches facing great challenges today as there's tremendous cultural shifts taking place. We can all learn a great deal about leadership and getting things done by studying the book of Nehemiah. Again, all around us, people are crying out for leadership. Now, I want us to begin this series tonight, and and as we do, I think it says a lot about our church, too, and the challenges that we face right here in Concord, North Carolina. Cultural changes taking place here, maybe not to the extent of somewhere like uh, L.A. or Chicago or New York or, you know, cities like that, but still, even around us, we're seeing major shifts uh, take place. Now, folks, Nehemiah's situation was a little different than ours because in Nehemiah's day, uh, there was a lot wrong. I mean, Nehemiah is going into a situation of utter devastation. And so we do need to understand that uh, as we study this book. What severe challenges that Nehemiah was facing. Now, as we get into the book, there's some historical data that I want to go over in this first lesson that I think is going to help us understand the book as a whole a little bit more. You know, somebody said a text without a context is but a pretext. And so if you're going to understand the message of a book fully, you really need to understand something about the setting that that book was written in. And I think the same goes for this book, of course. And so let's take a minute to, to review about Nehemiah's day. Now, previous to Nehemiah's day, God's people had been warned time and time again that God was going to judge them for their disobedience. They didn't repent. And so God did exactly what he had warned them that he was going to do. First of all, he allowed the Assyrians to overrun the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was made up of 12 tribe, uh, excuse me, 10 tribes, and sometimes they were referred to in the northern kingdom as either Samaria or Ephraim. But the Assyrians came in and and overran that area, and that happened in 722 B.C. Now remember back in 931 B.C., Israel had divided into the two kingdoms. 
Israel became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Or Samaria and Judah. Remember that? And God started his judgment against the northern tribes. And the Assyrians came in and overran the northern tribes and completely destroyed them or carried some of the remnant away. And again, that all happened in 722 B.C. And then after the Assyrians did that, they also shipped some foreigners into the northern kingdom who intermarried with the people of the northern kingdom who remained there. And so the people of the northern kingdom, the, the Sumerians, uh, became half-breeds. So even into the New Testament era, the people of Samaria were still considered uh, half-breeds. And the Jews didn't respect them very much for that because they had, they had lost some of their ethnic and cultural identity. Well, then the southern kingdom, God, God said that he was going to likewise judge the two tribes of the southern kingdom if they didn't learn from their brothers up north that God was going to deal with them likewise. How did he deal with them? The Babylonians, exactly. God raised up the Babylonians to cart the people of the southern kingdom away into exile. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, came to Jerusalem and laid siege, uh, siege against it. Now, many of those that they didn't kill, they carried away to Babylon. This was the first deportation. Now, what Bible character got carried away in the first deportation? Daniel, exactly. Then in 597 B.C., there was a second deportation. What Bible character got carried away to Babylon in that deportation? Ezekiel. And then in 586 B.C., there was a third deportation and Jerusalem was destroyed, including the temple and the walls of the city in that third deportation. And so many of those living in the southern kingdom were allowed to live, but they were deported to Babylon for 70 years. And of course, this is referred to as the exile. Now, just as God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah, in 539 B.C., after 70 years, the Medo-Persians would defeat the Babylonians, and Cyrus, the Persian king, would issue a decree that the Jews could go back and rebuild their land. You can read all about that in the very last chapter of the book of 2 Chronicles. And the first chapter of the book of Ezra gives this decree by Cyrus for them to go back and rebuild. But folks, it all happened exactly as God said it would. Now, should that surprise us? No, shouldn't surprise us at all. Because God is faithful and true to his word. If God says something, you can take it to the bank. You can count on it. 
And so after the exile, the people came back to Judah in several waves. Now this is sometimes called the second exodus of the Jews. When they left the foreign oppression of the exile and they went back home to the promised land to rebuild it. Of course the first exodus being when they left Egypt. Again, this is referred to as the second exodus. Well, they came back under Zerubbabel and Joshua, not the Joshua of the book of Joshua, of course. And Ezra chapters 1 to 6 records this first coming back into the land. Those who came back with Zerubbabel and Joshua, by the way, they were, about, they were close to, to, to 50,000 that came back in this, in this first wave back and uh, those who came back with Zerubbabel and Joshua began working on rebuilding their homes and rebuilding the temple and all of this was done in the midst of great opposition from their neighbors their neighbors tried everything they could do to discourage those who came back in this first wave consequently about 10 years went by where they did not finish the temple they began to give more attention to their homes and the temple and the walls of the city were still in ruins. And in response to that, God raised up, first of all, Haggai and then Zechariah to get the people moving again. God told them, why do you think financially that your families are not flourishing? You bring your pay home, but it's like when you come home with your pay, there's been a, a hole in the bag that you brought your pay home in, and you get home with it, and it's all gone. Why do you think that's happened that way? God said to him again through Haggai and Zechariah. He said, because you've given attention to your, your own homes and your own material possessions... And you've not put a priority on rebuilding my house, the temple. And so God said, you bring your pay home and I, I blow on it and I make it disappear. And so the people got busy. They finished rebuilding the temple and they rededicated that temple in 515 B.C. And then Ezra 7 through 10 recounts the second return of exiles who were led by Ezra in 458 B.C. Ezra was a priest who arrived in Jerusalem and he led the people in spiritual reforms and moral reforms. Now that brings us down to the time of Nehemiah. They had rebuilt much of the city and the temple, but they were still weak and they were still exposed to attacks. What hope could they have without walls rebuilt? And so the book of Nehemiah records the third return to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And this took place about 445 B.C. Amazingly, the walls hadn't been rebuilt yet. And back then, 
massive walls were your first line of defense. If a city did not have walls around it with secure gates that could be locked, then that city was subject to enemy powers coming in and devastating that city. And so, uh, again, they'd not rebuilt the walls. And this, this left their homes and this left their businesses uh, subject to being destroyed again. And it also left the temple subject to being destroyed again. Now, it's not as though they had not attempted to rebuild the walls. Sometime around when Nehemiah's boss, Artaxerxes I, uh, had come to power, and he ruled from 464 B.C. down to 423 B.C., when, when he came to power, we're told in Ezra 4 that the neighbors to the Jews got together. They sent him a letter to make the rebuilding of the walls stop. He said if these Jewish people are allowed to rebuild the walls and Jerusalem becomes strong again, this people is going to be a thorn in your side and they're always going to give you problems. They play off of fears. Well, the Persian king wrote back to him and said, You're right, go and make the Jews stop rebuilding the walls. And so the surrounding neighbors to Judah got all the forces together. They went down Jerusalem. They stopped the work by force. They tore down much of what had been fixed. And they burned a lot of the rest of it that had been fixed. And so the people felt very hopeless. They were very demoralized, and they were very discouraged. Now, this is the situation that is reported in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. He says, They said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Again, this is not a reference to when Nehemiah, I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had come in and done this, but when they had started rebuilding and, and the neighbors had sent a letter to the Persian king to make it stop, and the neighbors came in and made it stop, and they tore it down again. That's the situation. From somewhere around 465 down to 445 B.C., they'd been living in these conditions without protective walls. Now you can see why in Nehemiah chapter 1, the report Nehemiah received was that the people were in great trouble and great distress. Again, this is where Nehemiah comes onto the scene. First of all tonight, I want you to see, God places people where he wants them for his divine purposes. You have that on your, your sheet tonight if you'll look on the back. God places people where he wants them for his divine purposes. Do you think of a young lady in the scripture who was in that same situation? Esther, exactly. Esther factors into this story too. 
but with a little different twist. The book of Esther gives a glimpse of the Jews who had stayed behind in Persia. And it records events in Persia that happened from 483 to 473. So just before the time of Nehemiah. And so here's the timeline. You have Zerubbabel and Joshua leading the first exiles back home. Then you have Esther dealing with those who did not go back home. And then you have Ezra dealing with more, a second wave who went back home. And finally you had Nehemiah also dealing with still more, a third wave who went back home. Now folks, just think with me a moment about Esther. God raised Esther up to be the queen of the Persian king because Haman, a wicked ruler alongside of the king, was planning to have all of the Jews exterminated. And so even though as a general rule God was against the intermarriage of his people with people of other faiths, he allowed it in this particular case so that the Jews as a people could be saved from extermination. Esther exposed Haman's wicked plot and the Persian king had Haman killed instead. As Mordecai, Esther's uncle, told her, God has you in this place at such a time for this, for his purposes. She was there under divine appointment. Now Nehemiah was in the very same situation. I believe through the providence of God and through the sovereignty of God, God had Nehemiah as the cupbearer to Artaxerxes I at this particular time in history so that Nehemiah could finish the rebuilding of the walls that needed to take place and so that Jerusalem would be secured once again. Here was Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. He was a layman. I want you to remember that. Because Ezra, the same time, a contemporary of Nehemiah, Ezra is the spiritual leader. Ezra is the expert in the law of God, the Torah. And Ezra is the one during this same period of time who is leading in the spiritual reforms of the people. And here's Nehemiah. He's a layman who's a leader and he's working alongside of Ezra and he's like a businessman. And God uses the two of them together. Who would be a great Name somebody that would be a great business leader today in your opinion. Warren Buffett. Put a Warren Buffett and a Charles Stanley together. A minister and a businessman working for the same ends and the same purposes for the sake of the church. That's kind of the situation, okay? Nehemiah, 
cupbearer, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but a layman, a businessman, along with Ezra, the scribe, the expert in God's word, the two of them working together so that the Jewish people would be established in the land, the, the, the wall would be rebuilt, and then spiritual reforms could take place. Do we have any business leaders in the church? Anybody here that says, hey, my gift would be leadership or administration and you work in the secular workforce? Anybody like that tonight? Sure, probably a number of people in here tonight. God can use you. God uses all of us to be a blessing to his work. Right? The cupbearer was one of the ancient king's most trusted advisors. What would a cupbearer do? Taste the food and the wine. Because think about times back then with, with dictators and monarchs. People were always trying to knock them off. Even people in their, own, in their own regime were constantly trying to knock them off. They would do this through a number of different ways. One way was through poisoning them. And so if you're the cupbearer, you get the job of tasting all of the king's drink and his food before he eats it and drinks it. And I guess he looks over at you and he says, well, if Nehemiah's not dead yet, I guess I can eat my food tonight. But the cupbearer would also oftentimes become a very trusted companion and advisor to the king. Okay, that's the role that Nehemiah is in. He's more than just a butler, okay? Again, this is Nehemiah's role. Do you think all this was coincidence? Absolutely not. Here were the walls of Jerusalem all broken down. Everybody's still living under this edict given years earlier by the Persian king that the walls could not be finished and could not be fortified. And so Jerusalem's in shambles and they've not been able to really get on with life and prosper. But here's a Jew, Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the current Persian king. Coincidence? I don't think so. God places people where he does for his divine purposes. Why are you here? Why does God have you where you are at this stage in your life? What is your role at work or school or wherever? Folks, we, we need to, we need to, we really need to catch a fresh vision for the providence and sovereignty of God. God has us where he has us in life for his divine purposes. 
You're not made just to tread water and exist. Where you are and where you live and where you serve, God has you there for a purpose. How about us as a church? Since 1943, God's allowed a church to be out here. When they first put Pitts Baptist out here, somebody said, why in the world would anybody in Concord put a church out on Pitts School Road? There's nothing but cows and trees out there. God has us here for a purpose. Jesus said that his disciples are to be salt and light. Folks, we won't frustrate the purposes of God if we were to disobey God. God might judge you. God might judge it. God's work doesn't stop. God would just raise up somebody else. And you and I would miss the blessing, right? What's God asking of you? What's God asking of us? What do we need to do to reach our community and our world for Christ? You may be the only Christian in your work environment. You may hate your work environment. You wish God put you somewhere else. And God may end up putting you somewhere else. But as long as God has you where you are, He has you there for a reason. You and your spouse... Y'all may have married as unbelievers. You weren't unequally yoked. You were both unbelievers. Then you became the believer. Does God want you to leave the marriage? No. 1 Corinthians 7 is very specific about that. 1 Corinthians 7 is very specific that at 6 and 7 that a believer is not to marry an unbeliever because you'd be unequally yoked but if you were both unbelievers and you become a believer you stay in the marriage because you have a sanctifying effect on that marriage God ha- God's people are so oftentimes wanting to want, want something else and God has you right where you are for his purposes The old saying is what? You need to bloom where you're planted. Second, God's people need a burden for what could be. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We need to live with a holy tension. I think of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul was living his life pressing on, he said, pressing on to lay hold of that for which God had laid hold of him. He had great contentment in his life and said that what was in the past he had laid behind. And Right? And he was forgiven of those things. And he was pressing on. There was, there was this holy tension in the Apostle Paul. You know, thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I ought to be. But I'm striving towards that. There was this holy dissatisfaction in the life of the Apostle Paul. We need to live like that, don't we? 
Now, on the one hand, we're to live with thanksgiving for what is. The Bible says that in all things we're to give thanks for this is the will of God concerning you. Especially when we enjoy good, we need to be thankful for that goodness is from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. It must break God's heart when we express ingratitude. God's good. He had allowed the Jews to return and rebuild as much as they had rebuilt. But it was unfinished. And because of the unfinished business, they were suffering. They were the reproach of their neighbors. Nehemiah hears the report. He has this incredible burden for what could be because things were not yet as they should be. And so there's this tension. You read his prayer and there's gratitude and there's thankfulness on the one hand and yet he's acknowledging that they're not what God would have them to be on the other hand. Now think about that in your own life. Aren't you thankful for what God's done in your life and where God has brought you already? Aren't you glad of that? But sometimes don't you feel like Paul in Romans chapter 7? Oh, wretched man that I am. Thank God for what he's done in us, but what could be? What could be? And are we pressing on for that? Do you have a burden for what could be? Nehemiah did. Thirdly, burdens need to be carried to God in prayer. Verses 5 to 11. This is where Nehemiah started. It's precisely where we do not start oftentimes. We say, what do I want? And then we run ahead and we make a mess of things. We need to start with prayer. God, what do you want to do here? What's your agenda? How can your name be best glorified? Now, there's several elements of this prayer that I want us to look at tonight. First of all, in verse 5, he points out that God is faithful to the faithful. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is faithful to the faithful. We reap what we sow, don't we? That's a biblical principle. God's good to all of mankind. He makes his rain to fall and his sun to shine on everybody. Everybody benefits to some degree from God's general blessings. Theologians refer to that as God's common grace. Everybody benefits from God's common grace. But then there are God's special blessings And that's what Nehemiah is talking about here in verse 5. God's special blessings on them. 
In his prayer, Nehemiah is praising God for his faithfulness to the faithful. He's praising God because God sees us and God knows what we need. And so he is appealing to God that God would see their current need and that God would intervene. A second element of the prayer I want you to see. Sins are confessed. Disobedience will always hinder God's work from being done and it'll hinder God's blessing on his work. And so disobedience and sin has got to be confessed. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, Beginning there in verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah is not saying, God, it's them. Look at them. Nehemiah is including himself, right? God, we've all sinned and come short of your glory. I'm included in that. Forgive us all, God. Forgive us all. Then a third element, he is calling on God to answer. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. James says, you have not because you ask not. Nehemiah is saying, God, help us. God, help me. Nehemiah is bold enough in his prayer to ask God to make his way successful. Nehemiah knows what he's about to ask the king that he can go back and do. And he's saying, God... Would you have favor on me? Would you bless me and give me success in what I'm about to do? Because Nehemiah recognizes that without God's favor and without God's hand on us, folks, we are nothing and we can do nothing. John 15, the vine, Jesus uh, allegory there about the vine and the branches, right? You're nothing without me. Jesus said, abide in me and let me abide in you and let my words abide in you because you're nothing without me. God, we need your favor. We need you to prosper our way. We need you to give us success. God, I need that. Nehemiah is saying, God, I need that. Give me favor in the sight of this man. Fourth, availability and contentment to do what one individual with God's strength can do. Nehemiah was where he was by God's design and appointment. He had a burden about what could be done. He committed the whole thing to prayer and he stepped up to the plate to do his part. He said, God, 
I want to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. I will do what I can do. Now, folks, it took courage, right? Do you understand that him going before the king and asking this to be relieved of his duties to go and do this, it could have cost him his life. He's putting everything on the line. Just like Esther. Yes. We need people who will put everything on the line to serve God. A lot of people think about it, they talk about it, they even pray about it. They just never do anything about it. And Nehemiah did. I want you to see that you are where you are by divine design. Think about that. Think of your circumstances, think of your challenges, think of the people that you work with and the people you run with. and all. You are where you are for God's purposes, just like Nehemiah. Let's commit to living with a holy tension. Be thankful and at the same time, never stop thinking about, is there more that God wants to do? Let's bathe our opportunities and the opportunities of the church in prayer. Commit everything to God in prayer. And finally, commit to doing what you can personally do. Put it all on the line. Chapter 1 is the beginning of great things for the glory of God. Great things for the glory of God.